Well, hello, this is the first episode of Synchronized, a new podcast for the production music industry. My name is uh, Ferdy van Beek, I'm from All Music Publishing, co-owner, and with me is Simon Webb. Good to have you here, Simon. My pleasure. Um, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Okay, so I'm a composer, musical director, and I run a company called Music for Sport, that is a production music library specializing in music for sport. And together we decided that it would be a great idea just to chit-chat, because we normally do that as well when we talk to each other, chit-chat about the industry. And we thought, you know, we need some, some fresh input. So um, we decided to invite a guest. And with us is Simon James. Hi, Simon. Afternoon, both. Hi, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. Yeah. Good to have you here. Um, I think it would be a good idea just to give us, uh, a lot of people probably know you and know where you've worked, but just to give the whole picture, can you tell us a bit of your work history, where you started and what you did? Sure, I've um, been doing production music, involved as a publisher predominantly since 1985, can you believe, <laughs> um, starting at Bruton Music, and uh, then Music House, I'll quickly run through it, uh, which became part of EMI. Um, then Zomba, which became part of BMG, which is now known as Universal. <laughs> um, and um, basically, I've spent the last five years as uh, head of production music for the PRS, Performing Rights Society, in the UK, and also uh, with responsibility for MCPS, production music. And um, now I am working with Harvest Media, Australian-based company, um, providing digital asset management and search engines for sync business, but particularly production music, which is where it began. And I've known those guys since it, it all began, around 2008, 2009 time. And um, yeah, so I'm London-based, but uh, working with them right now. Okay, so when, when did you start working for them? That's recently. Yeah, recently, just this year. Funnily enough, I've been, um, I actually took voluntary redundancy from PRS last year and was doing a little bit of consultancy here and there and was looking forward to meeting um, Angus Hayes and, and the guys from Harvest in Las Vegas at NAB this April, um, as we have done many a time before um, <laughs> and chit chatted like you enjoy. Um, but alas, that was clearly uh, knocked into. Um, not in the cards. Not on the cards. So, um, yeah, we just were emailing and I, I was saying, look, you know, I'm free. And they were looking to uh, get some better representation on this side of the, not pond, it's, but this side of the world. Yeah. Um, so it just seemed like a good opportunity to sort of say, well, great, let's, let's just shake hands and, and I'll, uh, I'm representing it here. So Simon, what just go before you started work? What was were you a musician, or um, what was your sort of area that led you into production music? Um, I grew up in Cornwall, and I wasn't a musician, though I did play badly in bands uh, or anything. I try I played bass, drums, and guitar uh, yeah. and keyboards, but wow. only because they kept my friends kept trying to get me to play something and, and figuring out if I could play anything well. Yeah, uh, and I kept moving on. Well, why don't you try the bass? Um, <laughs> so, uh, but meanwhile, I was also um, as a schoolboy, I was recording a lot of um, choirs. I was working with a local sort of music company, um, recording local choirs and orchestras yeah. and, and sort of brass bands and all that sort of thing, wow. as well as doing a lot of work experience at BBC, BBC Radio Cornwall, um, which had just gone on air back in 1983. Um, and uh, so I was sort of interested in media and music and where the two yeah. things met, and there weren't that many opportunities. So 
um, I saw one of the great things about the, the work experience at the BBC was that I got to read a magazine called Music Week every week, yeah. which uh, I was probably the only 14-year-old in Cornwall that saw <laughs> Music Week every week at that time. And um, reading the, um, the pages at the back where they have the jobs advertised, I saw a postboy wanted in London sort of thing. And this was a bit later when I'd left school. Yeah. And uh, couldn't couldn't you couldn't keep me off the train? You know, I was desperate to sort of get up there, and actually failed at the first attempt. Didn't get the gig, but um, I did come back uh, six months later when um, the previous person didn't work out, yeah. and uh, um, and they said, "Do you want to come back? The, the job's available again." So I got the gig second time round. And this was Bruton, right? At Bruton Music, yeah, which was part of ATV Music back then. Did, did you did you know what production music was back then, or well, was it just a music company? Uh, uh, it, it was advertised as just a music company, though it mentioned something about media from memory, but oddly enough I did, because of my BBC experience, I'd been, um, uh, one of the jobs that I used to do was, people would say, we need a bit of music to go on a trail for a competition or a, or a weekend Saturday morning program or something so they'd asked me to do that and we had a, a gram library, gramophone library as they were called, um, full of all of the commercial releases which would come in on a regular basis etc but also um, a load of music library LPs and um, specifically I remember actually finding uh, a track off a Studio G album Um, the first time, I don't know if it was the first time, but I don't know why this one sort of sticks yeah. in my mind. Finding a track off a Studio G album um, to go on a, a for like a game show, a little quiz rather, which was happening on the Drive Time show every every day, and and therefore that jingle was played about five six times a day then, Monday <laughs> to Friday for as yeah. long as I could remember. Um, and also they'd get me to do the logging. That was the other thing, of course, because no one wanted to do logging. No one wanted to <laughs> fill in forms, you know. So um, I knew about how you had to write down what you used and how yeah. these people got paid somehow that way. Um, and I'd also chosen a bit of music. So I suppose I must have, um, you know, bluffed my way through the interview with Robin Phillips when I came up for the Bruton job. And, and uh, you know, that was enough. Excellent. Yeah. The strange thing is that if, if you look at those days, uh, you've probably all seen the documentary The Library uh, Music uh, Film. Sure. Which is amazing, great yeah, great film, absolutely. I think everyone should see that. Uh, should see that. Okay. Uh, but but it's it's amazing if you look at the albums at, at the cover art that's being that's being used then, because you probably still remember spe specific covers. Totally, and and that was I mean Robin was very much, um, you know, my mentor. I worked with him then for 17 years or something like that until he retired. And um, I always remember that at the beginning because those artworks were quite simple, probably, quite often, or, you know, quite uniform, frequently, in terms of the style um, from one library to the next. But uh, the one that Robin always used to refer to was, the, was uh, I can't remember what the number was now, but there was a Bruton album where it had a picture, an illustration of a, a fighter jet coming out of a fireplace which who knows what that means or meant at the time. <laughs> I, there must have been some logic to it, but in his mind it was memorable. Yeah. And it kind of emphasised the point that you might not remember the name of a track or you might not remember the name of the writer that wrote some tracks or even the album title, but hopefully you know, this is another handle to hold on to when you're sort of trying to go back and find uh, a, an album that was useful last time because China Graph pencils, people would scribble on, on LP covers and then indeed on... 
um, on CDs when they could find the space later on. But it was all about reusing tracks that worked really well. Yeah. You know, last year when I was doing something, and that track would work really well again now. And uh, you know, so yeah, the cover art was important. And less so now. Obviously, we get an icon size to deal to work with. It's well, strange, isn't it? I suppose we've got. Yeah, it's a shame. I mean, there, there ought to be maybe more emphasis on it. But then again, we didn't have playlist capabilities and no. the ability to share playlists and all of that sort of thing, which is now you know sort of commonplace. Um, yeah, it used to be scraps of paper, you know, scraps of paper and. Uh, you know, the post-it note wasn't even invented, for God's sakes, in the times that I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, tr that's true enough. But, but the thing is that somehow you had, a, of course, a physical product. So if you would visit clients, you would be able to hand over something. And what you say, the artwork is important. And if you didn't even recognize the title of the track, you would probably know on which album it was because of the artwork. That's completely uh, different now. Um, we spoke briefly yesterday, and you told me a great story about you were driving around supplying your clients with CDs. And then the CDs were with um, sound effects, and you could sell those CDs. Mm. And you had a, had a great uh, promotion uh, for that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, that was uh, at the beginning of CDs, because you're right. I mean, it was LPs when I started, and CD wasn't invented. God, this is making me sound old. Um, we're, you know, for the people listening, we are all of the same generation, the three of us, but for yeah. some reason I'm being picked on here. Um, <coughs> but, yeah, <laughs> I, used to, um, I used to go out and distribute, certainly around London on foot, uh, you know, distribute LPs or even on a trolley or something and go and visit we used to use the bbc mail room like it was our own personal facility It'd just turn up there with umpteen packages for people up and down the country and just go all right fred the bloke who was running the mail room back then and you know here's a bunch of stuff he thought we worked there and it was all internal post, <laughs> but it never quite was the reality but then um yeah the cd came along and not only was it obviously um great quality and and this was you know a factor that was going to be a, a benefit to our professional market but also it was more portable but the problem was no one had a cd player nobody wanted one um and what we did uh, this was at music house um just soon after the company was formed in 1987 by the aforementioned robin phillips because <coughs> after zomba bought bruton he uh, he left the company and then formed this new business and um he did a deal with a guy called jim long in America to represent First Gone Music. Jim Long was honoured last year at the, um, P no, yeah, it was last year, PMA, at the Production Music Conference, um, so some might know him from that. Um, so we represented his library, First Gone, um, and that was on LP and CD at the beginning. Um, but as I say, no one had CD players, but we also took on this sound effects library, which was 10 CDs from Sweden, a, a library called um, Digifex. And it was 100% DDD recordings, which meant digital at all three steps. Yeah. Don't ask me what the steps are. I can't remember anymore, but it used to be important back then. Um, <laughs> so uh, we were selling those as a copyright buyout for the sound effects because one door slamming is much the same as another, right? So that was more practical, whereas the music was licensed and obviously the CDs were given away or rather lent to the client yeah. as opposed to given away. There was a little aside, as you reminded me, Ferry, that we all tried to 
initiate a sort of um, policy where we'd start Fee. charging, yeah, yeah for, the CDs, for the CDs to the clients. Two pound yeah. fifty a CD, I That's think, right, exactly. which didn't even still cover the manufacturing cost. Actually, did it? Because no. it was expensive to manufacture. But for years, we'd been all spending tens of thousands of pounds a year on manufacturing LPs for free yeah. distribution. Not to mention the postage costs, and they were heavy things. Yeah. Um, but um, which is why we borrowed the BBC's facilities where we could. Um, so anyway, uh, in order to help facilitate this Digifex and, and this new um, format, we decided that anyone who bought this full set of 10 CDs um, of all DDD recordings of sound effects from us, um, we would give them a free CD player. So cool. in other words, you know, let's get you up and running. Uh, and whilst we're there, we might as well give you a set of our music CDs at the same time, our music house initial releases and the first gone ones, um, because what else are you going to play on them, you know, as well as the sound effects? So, um, yeah, we did a deal, I remember, with Sony. I remember driving down to the Sony, um, uh, what would you call it, Not warehouse, I suppose, yeah. um, just somewhere off the M4, southwest London, Basingstoke or somewhere like that. And... Um, to pick up, a, I don't know if it was 40 or 50 CD players, all in boxes. You know, they're quite chunky things. And I had an estate car that I'd hired, I remember. Um, and I managed to ram all of these things. We'd obviously got them at cost price or whatever the deal was. <laughs> um, and I uh, rammed them all in this estate car. But then the door wouldn't close. I remember the back door wouldn't close and I had to wrap it up around the sort of, uh, you know, sort of tape it closed, basically. <laughs> <laughs> um, and drive back to London. But that was, you know, a lot of people took us up on that and it was a great little promotion because it just got, there were, it's amazing, you know, um, I think, yeah, I mentioned to you, Ferry, that, that there was a period when people were anti-internet. In fact, Japan Absolutely. was very late in coming to the internet in a bizarre mm. way, way. Yeah. wasn't yeah. it? I mean, yeah. around at the beginning, a lot of people weren't so sure. I mean, there was a lot of variation between um, people's obviously uh, we didn't even have the word broadband I don't think people were on dial up and everything else so there were technical restrictions early on as well as nervousness around um, you know viruses and all of that which still exists to a degree but but obviously as broadband improved here and, and in Europe and uh, you know many places then it, it got embraced and the possibilities for search and finding things just multiplied and it's been a fantastic boon I think for our business because you, you've, you've also been involved with Play, right? The, probably yeah. the first digital distribution system in the world yeah. for production music. Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, there was a Mars system, which was sort of slightly yeah. more hardwired. Oh, Mars, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, yeah, um, Play started out as a, basically KPM CD-ROM version 2.2 or something in about 1998. And um, KPM, uh, well, EMI acquired Music House, where I was working and Robin and um, Aaron Harry and you know that team and um, we had our own CD-ROM which was a separate one because we were separate companies we've done our own thing and uh, you know that was working they were both working as search things but the actual um, category structure that that KPM um, were the architects of and, and which grew and grew not least of all due to the size of the catalogue of course uh, you know it's much bigger than our little music house catalogue was um, it became a very popular system and it, and it was very well developed so and then naturally it evolved online and um, Peter Cox who was the head of KPM as many people would know for many many years um, had the magnanimous idea that it should be uh, maybe we should invite in other libraries onto 
um, the same system because there's a lot of value in, um, let's face it, clients for many years and still, still today, maybe less so than it was, but um, a lot of clients would use multiple sources uh, for their library music. And, um, you know, there's no sense in pretending otherwise. So there's a benefit to them in the familiarity and the search mechanism. And since the KPM uh, website by then and um, CD-ROM were going so well, it was, yeah, it was um, received very well, the idea that um, we all have the same type of search engine. So um, it launched in 2002, I think, and we came up with the name Play. Back in the... I'll tell you what, this will date it. I remember we used to have these wonderful... Um, conferences from time to time and one year uh, it would be all of the sub-publishers from all around the world that we were involved with and, and one year it was the turn of the French to host it um, this annual uh, sort of conference and rather than invite us to Paris this was um, back in the days it was Kappa Gamma was our sort of French um, partner they said I tell you what we should maybe not come to Paris because it's dirty and it's hot and it's summer but it'll be much cheaper if we all go to Corsica, <laughs> to the island of Corsica. So Beautiful. we went down for this, um, yeah, fantastic. It was the first time I've been there. I have been back. Um, uh, and we had this two or three day conference, um, which was just wonderful. And one of the things on the agenda was obviously um, around search and, and this new multi-library system that people were keen on and how will we brand it and that sort of thing. And we were all trying to come up with a name for it. And it's possibly my proudest moment that uh, I remember being out one evening, or the last night, it was a Saturday, some of us stayed over the weekend, and I suddenly realised that something triggered that the word play was a fairly well-recognised multilingual word, though, though it's English, and obviously it has the connotations of playing music. So, um, and I sort of said that at dinner that night, and there was about a dozen people, you know, do we all know the word play? So that was where the name came from. I was mm. quite pleased. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, um, yeah, so we launched that with Zomba uh, on board and um, a variety of companies. Extreme Music was on it. Um, who was there from the start? Dead Good. Uh, Focus Music came later, I think. But there was a whole bunch of companies in the UK, and then there were other companies that we sub-published, so Video Helper, uh, in New York, uh, they had their own version of the site. So every member had a version of the site which was branded in their own way with only their library on or any libraries they represented in their territory. But also, obviously, in the case of like the UK, where we, uh, KPM Music House, as it was by then, represented Video Helper, then Video Helper was also on our player. And there'd be a different URL for each of those. There'd be a playkappagamma.fr as a result, as, as an example. Um, and it was a really successful thing, yeah. And then um, as a result of working with those other companies, I actually then moved to Zomba. Steve Cole invited me to... Well, there was a position going there, so I went along to that. And, um, yeah, we uh, yeah, cooperated on that very well still together, though I'd left my previous employer until BMG came along. BMG Mark One, and then they sort of didn't want to be a part of the play thing. So I jumped ship and went back to EMI just to head it up after that. Just jumping do you in think there. it was a mistake to be not... Oh, sorry. I was just going to ask you what file format you were using, Simon, at the, at the inception of Play. At that time? Yeah. Well, the, there was a push and pull, obviously, as I mentioned, still around the whole capacity, you know, and people's download speeds and everything else. So um, it was... It's kind of, I think of it almost as analogue back then because it feels quite 
you know, retro. But the reality was we were ingesting multiple file formats as the owners of the catalogue. We were ingesting yeah. WAVs and AIFs, and we were ingesting MP3s, I think, at 320 and, like, 128 or 96 or something, and, and making them all available through preferences for each user. So right. if yeah. you had an account and you were using it and you had a rubbish broadband, then you might down choose to, you know, you'd set your default at download at the lowest rate, for instance. Yeah, okay, yeah. So nothing's um, really I mean, changed, nowadays we just up... Well, nowadays we, we I mean, certainly on the, on the Harvest platform, you know, you just upload a, a, um, a, a WAV format, in the yeah. first place and it, and it transcodes up yeah. and when it's yeah. needed, you know. So but the user can still make those choices based on their their broadband. Oh sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah but I think the need now for MP3s one to eight is is less because everybody has broadband, so they probably prefer WAVs or AFs. AFs. I should think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But do you think you said BMG uh, didn't want to go along with the play uh, system? Uh, so basically, that was the start of multiple systems existing yeah. and, and clients needing to log in into multiple systems. Do you think that's been a mistake? Um, I don't suppose anything's a mistake, ultimately. I mean, even if they didn't, then other people would have set up different systems. Um, you know, it's just multiplied. There's so many other players in the market, certainly these days, and, and, and indeed it was already increasing back then around, I guess, what would that have been, 2005 or something, 2004 maybe, But, um, you know, in our lives, we're all so used to logging into so many different things. There's a lot to be said for um, having multiple catalogues, I suppose, on um, one platform. And some of the biggest players in our business obviously represent a great deal of catalogues, you know. Um, and, and, you know, the, the trick then is to aggregate the metadata in such a way which... Um, gives a fair crack of the whip to everybody involved, obviously, which, I mean, must be something very, as a sub-publisher, that you've had to manage a great deal with a lot of libraries, you know, representing libraries over the years, whereas Simon, uh, as far as I recall, you don't sub-publish any kind No, of I don't. I just, just one company. Yeah. sending out your own. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, as as a publisher, the the whole business of data has escalated beyond belief. I mean, if you remember back to the CD, it was little descriptive phrase on the back of the CD. That was it, wasn't it, really? Some durations, composers' names, that was the vital stuff. Now, I mean, I run multiple formats of data to cope with different sub-publishers' requirements. Um, you know, so Ferry, for instance... Really? Run, You're not on the Harvest system? Well, I, run, I am on the Harvest, okay. so well, for Ferry, I still supply... Well, I supply Harvest to Ferry, but, uh, say, my German sub-publishers <laughs> have their own unique system, which is... Um, um, you know, very effective for them, but it's very different. Even the durations use a different format. Um, oh. They're not interested yeah. in keywords, for instance, and yet they're hugely successful. And so, yeah, I mean, as a publisher, one is obliged to go with everybody that, you know, you can't take a stance and say, I'm just going to be Harvest, because you immediately, you're cutting yourself out of some of the market. So, yeah, I mean, Ferry's yeah. completely familiar, obviously, with dealing with all us publishers, but... Um, As a small publisher, it's well, quite we, we deal with Harvest and Source Audio because yeah. those are the two platforms that uh, that we get all the libraries oh. from. But I think in the whole industry, we can say we all suffer from PMS. It's pre-metadata stress. It's always about the metadata. 
Well, it's, uh, I mean, the thing is, running play, as I was, uh, uh, as I say, I sort of thought of it as almost uh, an analogue thing, although it wasn't, but, you know, thinking back, it, it seems so antiquated now. But uh, we were having to up, uh, update our the websites, you know, bearing in mind by now there were, I don't know, 20, 30 different iterations of the website that um, all running off sort of the same engine. But um, the engine was being run in such a way that it was had it to be updated manually. So everyone had to submit their new releases to a central place by a certain date in order to be in time for the next update, as opposed to it all being live, you know, and ingested and instantly available yeah. if you want it to be. Um, so, you know, what I was trying to do uh, when I was at EMI, not just me, but with colleagues, was was to improve that prop that that um, you know that challenge uh, to reduce the metadata. And uh, you know, things were also being distributed for hard drives, like around the world, physically updates for hard drives. You know, downloads from FTPs, or sometimes again with the broadband issue, it was easier to just stick a drive you know, in FedEx or something and, and send out 20 copies mm -hmm. and every library would be doing that. So if you represented 20 libraries in your territory, you'd be receiving 20 hard drives every month to try and update, you know, it was absolutely, I mean, back in the LP day, we used to think that there was always a lag, well, not think that, that, that you know, by definition there was a lag because when you had your LPs manufactured, you know, you had to ship them to your Australian agent, and that takes time. So they'd go out a couple of months later. But we were now talking about the internet and still suffering from... In fact, the lag was longer now because people <laughs> were building up all of this backlog of things that they needed to consolidate into their own systems. So it, I was desperately trying to... We didn't even use the term cloud back then, but, I mean, I had this sort of concept. We had sort of been throwing this idea around that surely it should all live in one repository and and download but then things started to unravel um, at EMI at that time in, in that phase of EMI which is well documented but um, they certainly started taking a turn against the whole let's share one platform ethos which people had been so uh, enthusiastic upon and they said well if it's so good then what, let's just keep it to ourselves and it, it was kind of like a bit of a turning point really because um, the shop got closed in that respect, and as a result, I kind of moved on and and you know name checking Vegas again um, that was about the time that I first met the guys from harvest actually um, and we uh, discussed that concept then of you know a cloud repository and simplifying that workflow process for original publishers and sub publishers at the other end. And um, so that was sort of the uh, uh, the initiation of that. And then um, I had a publishing business in the UK with my old colleague Tim Hardy, and we became the first sort of client in Europe to have a Harvest player back then, um, around 2009. So, um, yeah, so that's where it all, all came from. It's all about simplifying the workflow. But the other thing is about, obviously, ideally having a compatible world where everyone does talk to each other and the, again the other ethos with the harvest thing was that we make it um, affordable enough that everyone can join in so it's not an elitist thing so for instance you can deliver two source audio from harvest media um, and you can deliver to things like SoundMouse or AdRev and people that you work with as a third party as well as driving your own website and your sub-publishers from the same place. So someone like your German example, Simon, in an ideal world, there should be a handshake. If they had more than just you, if they had a bunch of different people coming along 
um, you know, all struggling to be compatible with them, then there ought to be a conversation so that Harvest sort of does that hard work that everyone else can just benefit from so that there's a permanent handshake. That's the yeah. idea. Simon, what, to what extent do you, um, when you're pioneering data and the new, way, new ways of um, describing music and things, to what extent do you share that? Is it, is it a shared goal around the world? Or, and to what extent do different companies like Source or do you have a different view and sort of go their own way? Or is it, do you feel that we're all going in the one direction now? I think there's always been a, an element of plagiarism, if you like, um, or popularity when it comes to trends in categorising and describing music. But um, personally, I haven't been involved directly in it for, for many years, so I don't really have a key uh, opinion on it. Um, again, with Harvest, the whole point is that it's basically a shell and it's not a dictatorial system. It's up to you to put your music in and categorise or, or stylize it however you see fit because I've said to quite a few people that I think that um, you know the descriptions and the titles and the imagery and all of that sort of vibe and, and the accessibility and, and the metadata are as important as the music which you know some purists kind of think well that's rubbish but the fact is that without all those things sort of resonating with a user, then they're not actually ever going to get to hear the music because no. they won't click play. So uh, I don't think it should be dictatorial from a platform, and, and, and it isn't. Um, it's entirely, uh, you know, here's the tools, now go ahead and be creative with them, set things up the way you think you should set them up, and, and we, you know, any more than we don't sort of say, I think you should have more bass on that track. I was struck, for instance, by how a piece that's three minutes long is described in various um, databases in three different ways. So one way would be zero 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 three zero zero. I think Harvest is, am I right, is zero point zero three zero zero, and others is just zero three point zero zero. So despite the fact that there is a lot of compatibility, in my database, page one has to link to pages four and five with multiple just versions of, of the duration. The Germans do it with a comma, yeah. not a colon. So uh, I'm very interested in how, in standardising this, I, I agree there's great help in having kind of openness so that people can come with new ideas, but basic things like what key you're in and how long the piece is, it's much easier if they're standard. I wonder, if, you know, do you think that's long coming or is that just because it's obviously when things are started, they're then very difficult to change them. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yes. I think, don't, you, don't you think it's also regional settings? I mean, uh, for example, if you look at the date format, um, the Americans have the month Nightmare. before the day. And that's, that's confusing sometimes. Uh, yeah, and a nightmare indeed, but a reality that we've just got to deal with at the end yeah. of the day. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. there are different. It's like you drive on the left side of the road and we drive on the right side of the road. Yeah, right? yeah, and, exactly. And we're right yeah. and you're wrong, Ferry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I don't think, I don't know, I'm not sure that you've ever got really um, a fully compatible world. Obviously the, the biggest challenge um, coming back from my uh, PRS world and you know it's all about being paid right, that's the most important factor, um, assuming you can get the music used in the first place but um, the affiliate relationships between all of the performing rights organisations in the world works fairly well and the CAE IPI thing there but equally um, you know, you've got to work on all of that stuff being compatible. That's that's kind of such a 
such an important factor as we all as we all know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's difficult. And I mean, there's so many more people jumping in to the business these days, and you know, so many more systems setting up, and you know, alternatives. And you know, it, it's it's also kind of a badge of honour to upset the apple cart these days too. So almost by definition, if you ever get close to that uniform world, someone's going to come along and bash it out of the way. Do you, if you look at the state of the production music industry right now, um, um, what's your opinion? Where, where are we? Are we on a turning point? or Always on a turning point, aren't we? I don't know which yeah. way, but um, yeah, I don't know. I, 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 think, I think it's um, there's certainly plenty of um, reason to be thankful that we're not in other businesses. I mean, for starters, you know, we're uh, able to conduct our business largely um, over wires with tiny little audio files and not shipping LPs around anymore or, or it, you know, being in another industry which is obviously much more um, manual or, or much less portable. So, so there's a good start. Um, there's, it's um, much more affordable these days, the entry um, point into the market. There's a lot of people that want to get in, by the way, and do get in. Um, and that's partly because maybe the entry point is lower than it used to be. I mean, sorry to keep harking back so far, but when I began, you know, you needed to have hundreds of thousands in the bank just to be able to record a couple of dozens of albums because you needed to hire a musician and, and, and sorry, a studio of musicians every single time. And, um, you know, then you had to manufacture the LPs and distribute them around the world, etc., etc. And that did not come cheap. So it wasn't a game to get involved with unless you had the proper investment. Um, nowadays, obviously, it's much lower. But So that's great for creators, that's great for publishers, that you can now have a really good online presence, you can um, do a lot of you know, marketing uh, um, online, etc., etc. Um, you've still got to have some boots on the ground and you've still got to have relationships. Um, you know, the sync community in the UK is a really healthy one and it's a great communities and awful, awful lot of people engage in a lot of events um, where competing people come together on a regular basis for various reasons and I've been on a few web webinars with that community recently which always sort of makes me cheery to be reminded of, of how many great people there are in the business um, but at the end of the day they're all knocking on doors trying to get their music used and, and quite often they're knocking on the same doors and then more and more people come along and knock on the same doors as well um, so competition is great, getting greater all the time. There's no doubt, um, but uh, so is the so is the world of music licensing. Um, certainly in certain areas, there's a lot more music being consumed by creatives mm -hmm. and, and producers. Um, but equally, as the market gets swamped, there's a lot more people trying to get their music used, maybe for less, and therefore. Sometimes in some areas the rates go down as a result um, rather than up, even though more music is being used. I mean, collectively, sure, um, you know, the revenues are great. Um, but uh, so I know, the, you know, the digital world, the DSPs and, and, you know, the world of consuming media in all its forms is, is um, you know, is growing all the time. I mean, everybody now, as far as I can tell, who's got... A laptop and a mobile phone is either um, a composer or um, a photographer or, or a producer or a director, or at least could be if they wanted to quite easily. Um, and obviously, there's kind of the professional 
world that the production music um, you know companies our business that we've been in traditionally over over decades has all been sort of b2b but there's also now businesses that are um, taking the b2c angle or b to somewhere between b and c angle of you know sort of semi pro yeah. or semi amateur creators um, who are you know youtubers and such like and there's all sorts of new revenue streams there and and of course new models springing up you used the word swamped a little earlier there, Simon. Do, do you think that the market is getting swamped? I'm, I'm very aware that three or four years ago, as a small publisher, I was being encouraged to produce more albums a year, and now I'm starting to get the opposite thing. Oh, don't produce too much. We've got too much anyway. I wonder if you had a, a, a point of view about whether we have reached a critical mass and whether there is, in fact, a danger of having too much material that means that there just isn't enough to go around, or whether you see this as a, a great democratising event. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's it, it's difficult to say. I mean, you know, it, it, at the end of the day, one thing that's been the common thread throughout all of, um, you know, my years in the business uh, has been relationships, you know. So it's about people's relationships with their clients, you know, or their composers, I guess, on yeah. the one hand, yeah. and then on the other side with their clients or through their representatives or sub-publishers or whatever. So, I mean, it's those people who then have their relationships with their favourite people, and some of them might always go back to their favourite suppliers and therefore can't get enough of what they offer. And um, I think some regular recurring blanket deals, for instance, with, um, you know, large clients might rely upon that feed always being maintained, um, whereas other users like to jump around and, and find different things from different places. And yeah, there's a lot of noise. There's a lot of stuff which, um, you know, if you're being pitched from every angle, uh, every minute of the day, then it's quite difficult to kind of remember, even if you did genuinely hear something yesterday that you thought might be good from someone, and sure enough, the opportunity's already come up. It's difficult to remember who it was and when they told you and whether they sent an email or, or what it was. So, you know, it, it, it's difficult to say. And, and I always remember when it comes to sort of saying, have we reached a critical mass or a tipping point, um, that I sort of foolhardily uh, said that when Extreme started. I said, I can't believe those guys are setting up another library. Surely we don't need another library. And they celebrated their 20th anniversary, I think, two years ago. So, I mean, you know... It, 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 it's, I've learned, if nothing else, not to try and make predictions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you've seen uh, the last couple of years, of course, different business models coming into play. Uh, we had Audio Network, now there's like Soundstripe, Artlist. Uh, do you think these business models are capable of changing the established production music world? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, potentially, anyway. I mean, I, I think Audio Network themselves have demonstrated that in, in their longevity and uh, recent, um, you know, uh, exit that they took. Um, so, um, yeah, they, they've made a, a huge impact. Um, the others that you mention, anyway, and there's all sorts of different businesses and models out there, um, some of them, I think, are targeted in certain areas. So, for instance, the YouTubers... Um, you know, it, they might sort of eschew the uh, traditional model and um, go after that. Others might be focused on the advertising market and, um, you know, bring it on. I mean, at, at the end of the day, I think there is a few factors that I'm always aware of, aside from just, you know, keeping up the value of, of the sync and, and obviously maintaining the performance. I mean, let's not mention 
some companies which are performance-free and non-PRO affiliated as well, um, which can cause a disruptive influence, but in my opinion are pretty uh, composer-unfriendly, frankly. So, um, you know, that's... But it, it's anyone's business if that's the model they want to set up. Um, but I think, yeah, that, that there's always plenty of scope for new things to, to happen. I think some of these companies... Question. Sorry would describe themselves as disruptive technologies. I mean, that's the very nature of the internet and what's going on. So um, disruption causes disruption to somebody. So um, do you see some of the old, older traditional business models failing as these new models come forward, or do you just think we're all going to sort of coexist happily? Not necessarily. I mean, no, I don't think failing is the word. I think that, as I mentioned, that the... Um, I think the scope of the possibilities has, has broadened. Um, I think ultimately it's up to every company, big or small, to sort of have a focus on where their strengths and weaknesses might be um, yeah. and therefore be that in the sector that they are, are, are most active in and specialise in um, or whatever. Um, but one of the fundamental things I think that the, for want of a better phrase, the, the established catalogues um, Offer is is a sense of assurance. I, I, I think that the concept of a li of a license that occurred to me some years ago was really um, just like a get out of jail free card. It's a bit of paper that says I'm not going to get sued. You know that's the point of a license. Yeah. And we've seen um, some. You know certainly some companies obviously highly value that piece of paper, um, and they therefore must make sure that they go through trustworthy sources um, and I think over the years we've seen examples of untrustworthy sources that have come along um, people that are sort of you know just sort of saying throw your music here and um, we'll just pile it high and sell it cheap and you know there's something to be said with I think the diligent process of a professional music publishing outfit that has you know a tried and tested due diligence and a relationship with their writers because um, not only from a creative point of view is a catalogue curated and, um, you know, crafted finely, you know, in the way that you would do. Um, but, you know, you know that if one of your writers might be prone to using some dodgy sample, then you look them in the eye and, you know, make them swear on their children's life that they didn't. Um, and, you know, go through the due diligence to, do, do, do diligence to mitigate any risks before you... Um, you know, sign that assignment and, and make it public and, and potentially expose yourself by, uh, you know, offering other ripped-off copyrights, which, yeah. you know, is a nightmare. Yeah. Um, I think that, that that's probably one of the strongest points, and it's very interesting that you mention it, because I know stories um, that were told about a website that uh, works on user-generated content, so people can upload their music and say who they are, and then it's been sold. And apparently there was one guy who uploaded all of the music of Hans Zimmer on there, which was subsequently being sold as proper licensed music. And of course, it wasn't. Oh. Um, uh, so yeah. it, it seems that there are some platforms, I'm not saying that all of them are, but some platforms don't do the due diligence you're talking about. Exactly. So you think that that's a very strong point of the established production music libraries? I think so, when it comes to dealing with the established broadcast and you know um, media uh, market uh, you know those guys are paying a pretty penny in return yes for music and a broad selection uh, of you know creative uh, resource which is the the core point of it but also 
that assurance behind the music itself that this is a, a business that we can trust. I, I think that it is an often overlooked but very important factor. Simon, you made the distinction between... I mean, it might be different when you're dealing with... Sorry, I'm going to delay there. I was just going to add that, you know, yes, and in comparison rather with, you know, a, a, as it were, an amateur um, home video person or, you know, certain other people might not have such concern for it. They're, they're just happy to, you know, maybe just get the cheapest or or, or haven't given it a thought at best. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you made the distinction between sort of YouTubers and, and broadcast. I, I've, I've sort of feel that, the YouTubers of now are the future broadcasters. So, in a sense, we, you know, the, the YouTube is where they're trained to be serious about sync and respect the process, and then they move into broadcasting. It's kind of second nature. Um, you maybe suggested that perhaps YouTubers are more suited to a different, the more contemporary platforms, whereas broadcast is is um, more suited to the existing platforms. I'm, I yeah, I'm probably just out of date with my reference. I mean, you know, maybe I'm just I'm I'm more so talking about I don't know, um, you know, a, a TikTok user or, or something. Maybe I mean, but I don't mean to be platform specific. I'm just I've been using the term YouTuber as a old-fashioned sort of amateur status, as it yeah. were. Um, that that's the only difference. But no, I take your point. Of course, it's I mean it, that's a, a fabulous you know I mean all of those platforms and the ability to. Um, make your content uh, available uh, to your audience uh, is is um, a, a fantastic you know resource these days that everyone has access to, and um, indeed it does enable people to you know uh, perfect their craft and I'm sure go on to make um, you know even in the established shall we say uh, the uh, television industry you know to get roles there from time to time, yeah. Um, but yeah I'm sure the two are merging and and it's certainly. Um, you know, the bigger any business gets, and let's face it, um, those guys are bigger than most broadcast companies. Um, the uh, all broadcast companies actually, um, <clears throat> it, it, they also want the assurance, obviously, going forward that um, you know they're getting uh, they're getting the rights that they need from their dollar. And uh, I know that the whole the ongoing negotiation around. Um, rights and licenses through the likes of PRS or ICE, in fact, here, mm -hmm. um, uh, and uh, looking after music rights on YouTube and all of those platforms is is critical stuff, you know. And and uh, there are so many different aspects. It's not just. I mean, it used to be in broadcast. Is it a commercial broadcaster? Okay. Well, do we include commercials? No. Fine. So it's just about whether it's a programme or whether it's a non-programme item, you know, i.e. a trailer. Mm -hmm. And those are pretty much the only examples, you know, the only iterations you had um, within a licence term. And uh, these days, you know, there are so many different considerations, I think, on a um, social media platform, for instance, yeah. um, that, I, I mean, we can only all but move gradually in the right direction and ultimately maintain a business which... Um, enables people to still make a living out of licensing music or creating music rather and having it licensed so um it occurs to me simon that our area of the business is one of the f main areas of the music business that's still seriously making money that it's still a business model that works so lots of the other areas of the business that previously were perhaps 
little less interested in us and now getting interested I'm talking about composers pop musicians and things more interested in getting involved in our area of the business so there is um, there's a kind of funneling towards sync uh, in my my view uh, which leads to an upping of the quality in some extent perhaps a, you know it's but there are competing forces um, I wonder if you'd notice that that, that that in the big companies you work for there's sort of more notice being taken of music libraries and library music Oh, definitely, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. From like you say, right from the the writer through to the chief execs, yeah, it's um, yeah, it's recognised now. You know, it's not quite the dirty word that it used to be. I always used to say yeah. that, you know, where we were in the pecking order was that, you know, the record companies were the top dogs, and um, they always looked down their noses at the publishers, and the publishers, if they had an office dog, they'd kick the dog, and the dog would piss on the library publishing department. <laughs> that was pretty much where we were, you know. <laughs> Um, so, uh, but nowadays it's not the dirty word that it once was and um, yeah obviously all sorts of people are trying to get involved but again it, it, it's the confusion uh, you know the, the, there's also there's a great discipline uh, I think in the historic world of production music uh, um, you know in properly curating a catalogue and having everything right from copyright through the you know, legal department and getting the contracts back and making sure they're signed, um, you know, making sure the terms are right and, and every which way. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it's an unknown quantity as to how uh, a lot of people are, are doing that these days. And certainly there's less probably consistency than there might have been once upon a time. And I think these are all factors that, people consider um, but also the whole thing about search you know and how you present music um, there's been a great discipline um, in our business around that and I remember like back in the early digital days being in at Medem when we had play in the early days and um, chatting with a guy I knew at the IFPI who was sort of saying you know digital is like the scourge of the business sort of thing I was saying well no it's, it's the be all and end all of our business because we were really early on in it you know, we adopted yeah. it and embraced it really well, really on, really early on, in a in a very disciplined way, because we were translating what we'd be, always been doing, and running, you know, running with that consistently across our digital assets. And I mean, you know, again, as I said before, the EMI thing sort of fell over ultimately. Um, you know, I was talking to like the head of digital stuff at EMI Records and across the group. Um, because they were going, how have you managed all this stuff? You know, they were kind of looking at us because they realised, getting distracted by the Napster years, um, that they were sort of a bit behind <laughs> this funny little library division even. Um, you know, obviously they had different requirements, but... Yeah. Um, I forgot your question again. Well, now you've answered it. Can I... Ferry, you've probably got another so, answer. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I just wanted to dive in with one other question. Simon, what... Um, AI, where's that going to take us? Who knows? I mean, you know, there are all sorts of um, different interpretations, I suppose. I mean, in what respect are we talking about AI in this question? I mean, well, I think automatically you know, written there, music, let's say that, that's where it's, where yeah, it's going to hit us the worst, isn't it? Exactly. But equally, I mean, that's the, that's the, the you know, that's the absolute, you know, worrying side of it that everyone's going you know going to put composers out of business which i mean I, I think that you know on the risk scale i suppose there's some aspects of the production music world which might be exposed there you know when there are some 
um, licensing businesses around the world who, you know, don't really require a high quality threshold in, in the music source and it's just something bubbling along in the background, then, you know, why not make a computer do it because it saves them a, a performing rights, um, you know, fee or whatever. So I can see that potentially happening in some you know, circumstances. Yeah. But again, as I said, there are so many different businesses in the world. I, I can't see that everyone is going to suddenly drop human-created music. There's going to be different tiers of what's required, as there are with suppliers. You know, you've got all sorts of different suppliers, all sorts of different libraries alone, um, potentially you know, labels and every other source out there, um, all producing music and presenting it in varied ways and everyone will find their you know best match i suppose mm -hmm. um that doesn't mean there's room for everybody because some people might not have the focus on the business market that they have you know they might not have identified where um you know where they really should be uh concerning their efforts or whatever but um but yeah i think in general it, it's not going to take over but on the plus side of AI, it's a question of how do we employ it to improve tracking Should of performances and, yeah. you know, the, the, the actual improved, yeah, the data, you know, that this is where glass half full, we kind of need to think about, um, you know, how to embrace it and how to kind of improve the world, not just from our own perspectives, but from our users' perspectives as well. Yeah. I'm absolutely in agreement with you. You shouldn't look at it in a negative way. You should look at it like, how can we use it to improve the service that we're giving to our clients, helping them find the right music, um, or making sure that there's a consistent keywording system or whatever, which will give better access to all the beautiful tracks that are available. Absolutely. Uh, I think we're almost at the end because it's uh, we're almost 55 minutes. That's a that's a good no uh, good length for, for a podcast for a first uh, pilot I think. Uh, I've been going on enough that uh, there's no one listening anymore. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> I think they're still here, Simon. Don't, right. don't you worry. Don't you worry. <laughs> uh, thank you very much for uh, being with us and uh, and sharing uh, your thoughts with us. Well, thank you. Thanks for asking the questions. I I, I feel it was a bit one sided. I, I sort of you know kind of want to hear your opinions as well. I've been doing too much talking, but I appreciate yeah. your uh, attention. It's great. Oh, Simon, you're we'll here. We have to invite you back then. Yeah, exactly. We really appreciate it, Simon. And we we're here to hear your you no, know, I've enjoyed it. your experience, and it's very interesting how you've uh, you you have a course very clearly plotted through it that is, on the one hand, quite traditional, but on the other hand, embracing all that's new. So I think that's a very sane, solid way through that will help people. Thanks very much. Thank you. Well, I wouldn't quite call it a plotting, more just a sort of you know lurch. But still, <laughs> I, I, I appreciate that. Uh, that doesn't look like a lurch. <laughs> Thank so you. Nice to see you both. And you. Okay. <laughs> Bye. Bye now. All the best.